coming up on this episode of The Hive Life. I remember sitting at lunch after I graduated college with my parents and them asking me what I wanted to do. And I, I at the time, I, I, I was part of a theater company in Chicago and I was doing some acting and, and that kind of thing and, and just try, just kind of grasping at straws trying to figure out what it was that I was supposed to do. And I couldn't, I, I, I was having trouble getting there. You know, I was misdirecting the passions that I had at the time and couldn't really find my footing. And I said, you know, what I want to do is I want to go to work every day doing something that I would do for free. Welcome to The Hive Life, where we pull back the curtain on Spiracle Media, a company based in Charlotte, North Carolina, with a team of former journalists that create beautiful, impactful stories that connect with your audience. Welcome to this episode of the Hive Life Podcast, where we like to talk to unique and talented individuals on the marketing and business front. I'm Jared Latch, alongside Tim Baer, both co-founders of Spiracle Media, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Brian Harrison. Brian is currently a vice president, multimedia content marketing manager at Truist and friend of Spiracle. And Brian, I'm excited that we've finally gotten you in this chair. I know, I know. It's been, what, we were talking about it as I walked in. We've been trying to do this for, what, two years? <laughs> At least. But we said that you've got so much more experience to share now. So this this is going to work out well. For better or for worse, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brian, we usually we look at current roles, which we will. Uh, but I want to get uh, to that shortly. Instead, focus on some of your past stops. Because as I look back, I found some things that I didn't even realize you did. Uh, a lot of it, I... I did know that you did, <laughs> but a really cool resume. So let's nice. start with uh, the experience with Blue Man Group because you, you spent about four years with them. Take us through how that happened, number one, and, and what that experience was all about. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, it's great to be here with you guys. I started with Blue Man Group in 2000. I was actually with them full time for about eight years and worked freelance with them for a couple of years after that. But I started working with them. I was living in Chicago after college. Um, I was a few years out and I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And I had a friend who was a performer in the show and went and saw it. And it, it not to, not to sound hyperbolic, but it was a little bit life changing in the sense that I'd never seen a show like it before. And given my uh, fascination with video design and, and live event video design, I thought, how cool would this be to work here? And so fast forward a, a year or two, a job opening happened and, and I started working at the Blue Man Show. Um, I was, uh, I, I started off part-time and then became the department head for uh, video production. So I was back off stage right, kind of doing all of the, all of the cues to bring all of the camera work and projection and, and video content up on stage. So. So it was cool. And so was that when it was only in Chicago and then expanded from there or had it already gone across the country at that point? No, actually it started in New York in 1989, I want to say. Okay. Um, small little theater uh, called the Astor Place Theater, um, 200 seats. And until the pandemic, it had been running consecutively since. Uh, it's a sold out show. So it started in New York, then it went to Boston. Chicago was the third show. Gotcha. And then from Chicago, uh, opened up in Vegas. And then that's when things started to get pretty crazy. That was around 2000, 2001. Um, they started to really get a lot of attention and decided, you know what, let's open this up a little bit more. Let's, let's see where else we can open these shows. And so opened a show in Berlin, um, opened Tokyo, Amsterdam, uh, Stuttgart, 
geez, I'm going to leave a bunch out. But long story short, we opened about 15 shows in the course of about three years between 2005 and 2008. And during that time, I sort of transitioned from just working the Chicago show into an associate designer role and and went around and helped open up all those shows. That's awesome. So you go from there to video content designer for My Morning Jacket. (laughs) <laughs> for your stint with the band. Wow, you guys did your homework. Yeah, we did. So this, what, was, this was fun doing <laughs> what, the homework. Wow. What was, what was that like? And maybe some roadie stories that oh, you could man. share from back in the day. See, now this is sweating. where I have to pull out my handkerchief. <laughs> I'm having PTSD thinking about all of my old live event work. Holy cow. All of the um, all of the 21-hour days are coming back to haunt me. Uh, no, no, that was a great, great experience. Um, it's not very often that you get to work with a band that you're familiar with, but you're not, you haven't listened to them enough to really be a fan. And then in my experience, they brought me on to do some work with them uh, through their production designer, who was an old friend of mine from Blue Man. We actually kind of were on the same path, traveled the world together opening shows. He goes off and works with Jacket and brings me in when they want to do a video design for the 2011 tour and actually brought me in a couple of years before that to do some ad hoc work with them. They started um, by sending me all of their all of their stuff, everything. They sent me literally, I want to say, five albums on vinyl, on CD, and digital. And so I was a kid in a candy store and just thought, <laughs> "How cool is this?" Okay, I'm I'm staring at my morning jackets vinyl. They sent me all of their like home home videos and pictures and stuff like that from the road, and they became one of my favorite bands of all time. And I thought, how often do you get to do this? How often do you get to work with one of your favorite bands? Um, so long story short, they came out with a new album in 2011, decided that they wanted to do a, a pretty large scale video design for their tour. And so I literally sat down. Um, I think I signed an NDA and got the album ahead of time and just started working with Mark uh, Mark Janowitz, the production designer, on exactly what this should look like, what it's going to be. And um, long story short, we made not only that album, but about 63 total songs of video content wow. that we kind of built out, cued for each song, just in case they wanted to do that song um, live. That's and, crazy. And so that was 2011, worked with them 2011, 2012. Um, they headline Lollapalooza and I had, I had this amazing kind of bucket list experience. I had been working in a room, not too much different than this, uh, in, in my basement at the time I was freelancing and, and I had a, um, a company called Harrison video design and, and we were basically creating this show and I had a, like a, like a 15 foot video projection on the wall that I was sending content out to preview playing the music really loud and my daughter at the time was four and she would just wander in and listen to the music and see what was going up on screen and I had an animatic of the LED on stage the LED screens look like a jumbotron that it had exploded and so <laughs> I'm sort of pixel mapping into all of these screens and Abby's just watching this and she doesn't understand really what she's seeing she just knows that it's interesting and she likes the music well fast forward about three months and we're in Chicago at Lollapalooza and she's standing up there and looking at the stage like wow that that weird thing on stage looks like what was on my wall what's going on and then the music starts 
And it was like light bulb over the top of her head. It all came together. It all came together and she starts hearing it. And it was one of those, one of those moments where it's like, oh, okay, this is what dad does. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so. a, it's a really neat story to see it come to fruition and the light bulb go off. Yeah. Uh, Brian, how did you get into the, the creative work? Uh, where did that start? Where was the spark? Is it something as you grew up? Is there a definitive moment where you're like, oh, oh yeah, let's a- go. Absolutely. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago watching John Hughes movies about the suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I, in high school, one of, one of the jobs that I had, I had a couple different jobs. I was, I was in sports, but I also, I worked in a nursing home and I uh, worked in a, like a Lowe's type place, putting, you know, bags of dirt in people's cars and stuff like that. But my favorite job was delivering pizza because I got to drive around. All right, don't laugh. I got to drive around in my 78 Regal and that's not a Buick. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that was definitely a Buick. That was definitely a Buick. I got to drive around and listen to music and what I love to do is come up with stories based on the things that I was seeing as I was driving. And back then, I mean, we're talking 1990, 1991 and the digital revolution was years and years and years away. And so at that point, I mean, I'm in high school. I haven't trained in doing any of this at all. I, I had no idea even what was possible. I thought I, I it, one thing that always stuck in my mind was I always thought that a crossfade would cost like a hundred thousand dollars to do, you know? And <laughs> I was, I was thinking back then this would be really cool to do. I would love to be able to do this kind of work and how, how, how do I get into it? What do I do? And, um, so long story short, I ended up going to college, uh, ended up actually going a couple of years before digital really happened. And so I kind of missed out. Um, I missed out on the whole thing. You know, we were still, it was still very much an analog environment at the time. And so I had to sort of come back around the other side and teach myself when I got out of college. I remember it was right around the time I started at Blue Man and I was teaching myself at home on credit card debt a lot. Mm-hmm. how to edit and it wasn't even on a Mac yet it was on like a gateway or something <laughs> like that I mean really really guerrilla style like figuring out how to do all this uh, just kind of on the fly and it was all in aid of just wanting to learn how to tell the stories that I wanted to tell um, and so I taught myself and that's how it really all began um, friend of mine at Blue Man that um that I worked with, we both started doing sort of in-house documentary stuff that got the attention of Blue Man Productions in New York. And that's where things really started to sort of change. And we actually started to do this less as a hobby and as a passion and more as a career, which was, which was pretty amazing. You know, you talk about that transition from analog to digital, you know, we worked in local TV and local TV was behind the times. And sure. so like I was still doing tape to tape in the early 2000s, you know, and so we were using three quarter tape and DVC uh-huh. Pro and all that good stuff. So I know exactly what you're talking about, but making that transition and having to sort of learn up on the on the new systems. You mentioned documentaries, one uh-huh. of the stints there or along your journey, you wrote, directed and produced Heroes of World Class. Tell us about that experience. So right around the same time as I was teaching myself how to edit, that's when high speed Internet really came to the forefront and we were all young poor 
living in Chicago, um, trying to figure out how to make ends meet, and $40 a month for internet seemed like a lot of money. And it was one of those experiences where I don't even remember, no, I wasn't even married yet. I was living with my, my future wife. We had a, a, an apartment together and said, you know, I think we should, I think we should get this high speed internet thing. Like, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds cool. And, <laughs> and I think that for as much as we're time, we're beginning to spend at the computer. Let's, let's get it. You know, let's, let's figure out a way to make it work. And so we did. And one of the things that I did first, because obviously anybody, anybody who remembers back then high speed was a big deal. When it came out, it changed everything. In, in my opinion, it was almost as big as the internet itself because there was no waiting. It right. was it was like getting a master's degree. It, 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 it reminded me of the matrix, <laughs> the way that, you know, there's there's, you know, the operator and he's literally downloading into your brain what you need to know in that moment. Right. It's kind of what high speed was. <laughs> <laughs> and in my in, in, in my experience, it allowed me to go back and think about things that I hadn't thought about in a long time, like this story that I grew up with which was a wrestling show that I just happened upon when I was looking for, for Saturday morning cartoons one day when I was 10 years old. It's like seven in the morning and I happened on this local station that was syndicating a wrestling show out of Texas. And we all know wrestling. We all grew up with wrestling mm -hmm. to different extents. I mean, we remember Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and all those guys. This is 1983 and it was, it, you know, it was still back during the day before things got really, really famous, uh, really, really big. But there was this show out of Texas that lo and behold was the number two syndicated television show in the world, which I didn't know that. I mean, I found out later on, but the reason that it was, was because of these three brothers that were kind of the good guys of the wrestling show. They were, they were local Texas athletes that their father was a wrestler. They became wrestlers after him. And I looked at, at these guys as a 10 year old and just thought, wow, these guys are incredible. This, childhood heroes fighting all these bad guys how cool um <laughs> then things began to take a little bit of a strange turn and um they became incredibly famous but they also suffered tragedy after tragedy over the next few years um several of the brothers died three of them committed suicide wow. it was just one of those stories that at such a young age it sticks with you and back during those days we were, I mean, all of us were starving for information. It's not like you could just jump on the internet and find out what you want to find out in that moment. You got to wait until next week or you have to wait until the next wrestling magazine comes out or whatever. Right. Um, or, or if it's covered in the newspaper. And for me at that age, and I know it seems, you know, kind of cheesy because it's a, it's a story about pro wrestling, but to me it was very impactful because as, as a 10, 11, 12 year old, I'm seeing these guys die and I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. And, and I, I saw this whole evolution of this story happen, not only with that family, but with other people in that company, I think 18 of their biggest stars passed away over the next 20 years. Wow. Um, some of them went on to WWF, WWE, things like that and passed away. But, um, you know, it, it impacted me in a, in a, in a, in a, very real way and I wanted to find out more about that story and I thought I wonder if the last surviving brother of that family is still around 
and he's he was my childhood hero and so i started using the high speed internet that we had to do everything i could to track him down and went on message boards went everywhere possible um and eventually ended up tracking him down um and i i i went down and flew down to dallas and i met with him and um we hung out on his porch and had a beer and i i i basically just said kevin you don't know me but you know i grew up and and you guys were were my heroes i'm not trying to to sell you on any on anything here i know you've never really sat down and told this story really in the way that i want to tell it but if you're open to doing it um you know i promise this is this is gonna this is gonna be a an amazing documentary now truth be told i had no idea what i was doing <laughs> yeah right i was 29 and i said you know i'm i'm i need to do something more i want to do something more than what i'm doing at blue man I want to be a storyteller. I've always wanted to be a storyteller and I've never made a documentary before, but I'm not going to let that get in my way. And so I literally, and this is where things get hilarious. I bought a camera at Best Buy and it was $900. It was a Sony Firewire something or another. And I chucked it in the backpack and I traveled to Texas over the next few years. And that's what I shot with. I didn't, I didn't have lights. I didn't have anything. And it was all based on the philosophical belief that I had at the time, which was I'm not going to let the, the fact that I don't have production quality of any kind associated with this. Mm-hmm. It's going to get in the way in the story. It's also going to get in the way of the debt that I already have. <laughs> and I, I just literally, I, I, I don't have it. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways. Because I've always had that belief that if you have the story, nothing else matters. I mean, if you can, you want to make it look good. You want to make it sound good, all that stuff. But ultimately, you can make a lot of really bad things look and sound good. Um, What you can't do is, you know, you can't have something that is an amazing story and tell it properly and have that fall flat because of production quality Mm -hmm. issues, right? So I thought, I'm going to do this out of my backpack. And I went down there and I, between 2000, 2001, 2000, between 2002 and 2004, I shot this basically going back and forth out of a backpack and shot at Kevin's place, shot at Texas stadium, shot at the cotton bowl, um, shot at the location where the weekly show happened. Um, the day that they started demolishing it, Hmm. the sportatorium, um, we did a lot of cool stuff. I, I taught myself along the way about music licensing, licensed the Flaming Lips and Stevie Ray Vaughan for the, for the documentary, which was cool. Um, and I just, it, it was a, it was a labor of love. It took a long time. Um, but the cool part of the story was it was, it, 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 it ended up being a movie that ended up in Best Buy with a camera that was bought at Best Buy. Which was which was pretty funny at the time. <laughs> that, that's amazing. And and Brian, looking at something like that where you had no idea about the process mm-hmm. going in, you knew you had a story. What were some of those checkpoints as you went through? You talked about the music licensing, which is a whole other ball game in itself. Mm-hmm. What were some of those key checkpoints to make sure this thing got to the finish line? Just keeping my eye on the fact that this can't be something that doesn't get finished. It's it, you know. 
we all have those things in life where we think, oh, we've got this great idea and I'm going to start it, but then it never goes anywhere. It ends up sitting in the garage or it ends up just, you know, on the cutting room floor. I really wanted to make this happen. And so I knew that everything that I didn't know I was going to have to learn in real time. Um, some of the things that I, that I, I sort of found out along the way, everything having to do with properly advancing a project. I mean, there were so many people involved in this. I can't even tell you, um, as far as participants and, and, you know, having to get releases and permission, things like that. So teaching myself about all that was, was interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I think that one of the things that I wasn't prepared for was creating the piece and having the story tell me what it needs to be, as opposed to going in with a predisposed idea of what it should be. Um, it turned out completely different. There were moments in the story that I didn't anticipate. And I'll give you just one quick example. Kevin was telling me a story about how his dad back during the depression is his father was a town sheriff in in a little town in Texas and for extra money he would take Jack his son to the town square and he would basically have him fight other little kids for money hmm. and all the townspeople would come around and they would stand in a stand in a circle and watch these kids beat the crap out of each other and they would pass the hat around for money hmm. and i just he's telling me this story and i thought oh my god I, i've never heard this before but then you fast forward that 40 years and you're at the sportatorium every Friday night in front of 5,000 people watching Jack have his sons play fight, but really actually the way that they did it, even though it was predetermined and scripted, they beat the crap out of each other in that yep. ring. And it's, it, there are legendary the stories. Thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was the same exact wow. thing. It was a full circle part of the narrative that I never saw coming. And that's when I started to feel like this is, this is really now, now I'm doing what I love to do. Mm -hmm. This is what I've wanted to do since I was delivering pizza. And this may look and sound horrible, but I'm going to get this story done. So. so I think we were looking at IMDb. I think it has a 4.8 rating mm. on IMDb still. So, yeah. so there's a great example of the story one mm -hmm. out over the yeah. situation. And I think it's on prime video uh, now. I think it's all that. If it's on Prime Video, you cool. better be getting some money out of that. No, that's <laughs> th those those days are long gone. And I'll actually tell you a a, a story that I just found out. Um, there were there were some issues with distribution on it. Um, I, I think every documentary filmmaker has horror stories about something that they made and it being distributed and the company going out of business or something going wrong. And basically at the end of the day, you're owed a lot of money that you never see. Right. That, that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I found out that it was being distributed in places that I had no knowledge of. I knew it was on Netflix back in the early days of Netflix. I knew that it was at Best Buy, which was great. Um, but I started hearing about it being in other places and uh, had no knowledge of that, received no royalties from it. And wow, definitely that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast that we can do sometime on, on just <laughs> young filmmakers watching out for their work. <laughs> I want to hit on Brian, cause you brought up something really important, uh, whether it's a documentary or whether it's a long form, short form piece, whatever it is, if it entails storytelling, 
I think a lot of people go in with this, this preconceived idea of how the story should be. How crucial is it for a storyteller in general to really stay out of their own way and follow the story, which I think can be a, a tough discipline to learn? Yeah, absolutely, Jared. It, there is a balance. And what I always tell myself is not to allow myself to get too married to any particular direction. Um, I think that, you know, you, you have to be open to it changing along the way. You have to be ready to pivot. Yeah, you have to. Because otherwise you can miss out on really incredible opportunities to evolve the story in ways that will connect with people. And ultimately, that's the whole point of this, right? I mean, that's what we're trying to do. It's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's not about... It, it has nothing to do with ego. It has to do with serving the narrative. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in letting the story sort of choose you and, and bring you along. Because otherwise, you might make some good pieces here and there along the way, but you're never, you're never gonna have a consistent body of work. You're never going to have clients that wanna work with you regularly because it'll feel more like you're serving your own purpose as opposed to the purpose of the story, which is why we get hired, right? Right. So that's, I think, the most important thing that I took from it all is to just, you have to be a sponge. You have to be a sponge and you have to be willing to change on, at a moment's notice based on where the story goes. Very cool. Um, so we took you down memory lane. Let's let's fast forward to today. <laughs> your current role at Truist, uh, multimedia content marketing manager, your vice president there. Take us inside your responsibilities in your day to day now at Truist. Yeah, we. Um, gosh, it, it's 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 still every everybody that I work with will laugh if they hear this, but uh, <laughs> I, I think they would agree. You know, it's been it's it's been an eighteen month process of all of us catching our breath on both the BB&T and, and SunTrust sides. Uh, for those that don't know, Truist is the, the, the merging of those two companies. Uh, 275 years of, of, of banking experience coming together. And um, my day-to-day -day work is um, working in marketing, supporting everyone around me that's trying to tell the Truist story. I have the best job in the company. I've told Kelly King, our chairman and CEO, that I said, you know, you. You may make more than me, but I've, <laughs> I've got the best job because I, I really feel like I do. You know, I, I, I get to go in every day or I get to work from home every day and I get to think about that kid that was delivering pizza and think they're paying me to do this. Like, all right. Any, any of my bosses hearing this right now? I didn't say that, <laughs> but keep, no, the, keep the but, paychecks coming. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but the truth is that is what I wanted to be doing from day one. I remember sitting at lunch after I graduated college with my parents and them asking me what I wanted to do. And I, I at the time, I, I, I was part of a theater company in Chicago and I was doing some acting and, and that kind of thing and, and just try, just kind of grasping at straws trying to figure out what it was that I was supposed to do. And I couldn't, I, I, I was having trouble getting there. You know, I was misdirecting the passions that I had at the time. and couldn't really find my footing. And I said, you know, what I want to do is I want to go to work every day doing something that I would do for free. And 
that's what I'm trying to sort of instill in my daughter. Um, it's what we talk about all the time and it's what I get to do at Truist. You know, we, we have a purpose and it's on paper and it's something that we all believe very strongly in. It's, it's to inspire and build better lives and communities. And I think that my being able to tell our stories, to tell human interest stories about the lives of our teammates and about our clients and about how we're able to help them and how we can do things philanthropically in our communities to help our communities and to help the people within those communities. That's something that you can't put a price tag on. And it's something that I honestly, I never thought I would be doing. I never saw myself working at a bank, um, but life brought me here. And, and I think that it was supposed to, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's funny. They say that if you, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. I mm -hmm. kind of feel the same way about being a storyteller for a corporation like Truist. Right. It's really easy to tell stories. If you wake up in the morning and you just finished a book and you think, you know what? I'm a Hollywood screenwriter. I'm going to write a screenplay about this and I'm going to do the, I, I'm, I'm going to make a film about it. I'm not going to say that's easy because you guys will get mail about that. <laughs> but, but what I will say is there's a difference. There's a difference when it comes to being passionate about a story and being passionate about storytelling. If you can, if you can effectively tell stories working for a Fortune 250 company and bring people in and connect with people on a human level with those stories, then you can do that anywhere. And that's, that's what's so amazing about the team that I work with, the people that I've worked with over the years that can do that and that have helped me get better at doing that. It's what's amazing about working with teams like you guys at Spherical. The fact that it doesn't matter what the story is. We're going to find a human interest angle to it and find a way to, to capture people with it. You know, um, I don't care if it's a story about a debit card. There's a story there. If it's a debit card, there's somebody that uses that debit card for a very personal reason or a very touching reason. And I want to find out what that is so that we can do a story about it, not right. do a story about the piece of plastic. So that's what I love about what I do. I love how you said that life brings you here. How did this opportunity find you? Because I, I think quite often people search and they search and they think they want to do something. And I've told in, in students in classes, and I said, sometimes you've got to let the opportunity come to you. Mm -hmm. How did it find you? Well, funny enough, and this is my human interest story. Um, <laughs> I got chewed up and spit out by the 2008 recession. I was living uh, across the river in New York and working. I had been I had been promoted and became Blue Man Group's first video director uh, for Blue Man Productions. So I was overseeing video production for 15 shows around the world, and I was living there, moved there on August 4th of 2008, and I got laid off two months later. Wow. And we had just moved, my, my family, my, my wife and daughter and I, had just moved everything from Vegas and moved all the way to New York, living in a, in a 600 square foot apartment, um, had put all of our money into the documentary. So literally, this happened and, and we were in trouble. And December 5th was my last day. So moved there, got there in August. I was done in December. No idea what was in the future. 
what 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 was going to happen. Um, but as any of us would do, you know, I, I, I continued forward. We made some really tough choices. Uh, we moved in with family. We did what we had to do for a few years. And lo and behold, I, I saw this job posting in North Carolina for this company called BB&T, which I had seen a few times when I'd come down here uh, visiting family. And, and I thought, hmm, job posting's interesting. The description is interesting. This sounds like something that would be right up my alley because they're sort of looking for a storyteller, it sounds like. So why not? And so I applied for it. And um, they weren't going to, they were going to hire locally. And we had friends down here and I said, you know, we're, we're thinking about moving down there anyways. And so if, if you're open to meeting, I'll, I mean, I'm going to drive down and, and visit my friends anyways. So I'd be glad to stop by and, and just, you know, we can chat. And, um, and so I did and came down, met with, um, my future boss, uh, Greg Ford and, and, uh, and Brian Davis and, um, Long story short, ended up getting the job a couple months later and, and started July 8th, 2013. And it started a whole new path and chapter. Um, and I can't tell, I mean, anyone out there who's ever lost a job will understand what I'm saying here. I was scared to death. Because if you've been through that and you've, you've gone through the chaos and, and the PTSD creating situation involved with, um, you know, having a family, losing a job, literally feeling like you're on your way up in this dreamlike career life that you have only to literally have it all pulled out like a rug underneath you. Um, that was, that was something that stayed with me for several years after I got down here. Um, and it's something that's still on my mind every once in a while. I'm not sure it'll ever go away yeah. because you, you know, you, you, you know, you're always kind of thinking, okay, I've, I, I realized anything could happen at any point. Um, but I've been very thankful and very, very blessed to work at, at BB&T and now Truist. Um, there's nothing like having, having the respect of your, your colleagues with the work that you do. Um, and that's, that's something that, truest is just amazing about if if you if you do good work they acknowledge it and um uh, i i honestly can't see working anywhere else and that's something brian that uh, resonates with me well losing a job same thing 2009 but i like to believe that it served as a, a central catalyst for us getting to where we are at least in those early stages because it, it pushed me and, and you go through all the stages of grief and you mm. you figure out Denial. what am i doing you question uh, what happened and then where am I supposed to be? Mm -hmm. You grieve that loss. Yeah. And then, and then you finally get back up. Mm -hmm. Hopefully for yeah. most people yeah. you get back up and you figure it out. And so, yeah, as you're, you're saying that it took me back, you know, yeah. it's like, wow, you know, I, now yeah. not with as much with a family and a lot of other stuff on the line, but still, still it, yeah. uh, it knocks you down. Yeah. And I can remember I was roommates with Jared then. Mm -hmm. I remember he, taught himself to play guitar, yeah. uh, spent a lot of time like sort of figuring himself out. Mm -hmm. And then literally a year and a half, two years later, we started Spiracle. So nice. Um, it is, you, you definitely grow from those experiences. And yep. so that's what's cool to hear. Yep. Um, one of the things I want to touch on with Truist, you know, we've been working with you for a couple of years now and I've always found it really unique 
how much as a Fortune 250 company you guys have bought into storytelling. Um, when I look at banks and other banks that are doing it, they're not doing it the same way. And I guess what I would want to know is why is that? Is it because your role that you're in? And then do you see the future for other Fortune 250, Fortune 500 companies going in that right direction? Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but I would say that there are a lot of people that work at Truist that believe the way that I believe about this. I, when I started in 2013 with BB&T, I thought, you know, aside from being scared to death, once I actually get past that, what, what, what do I want to do? What can I contribute? What can I do to help them do what they're trying to do in terms of, of multimedia content creation? And, and obviously a big part of that is storytelling. And I thought I'm coming in from the outside and, and, and one thing that our chief communications officer, Brian Davis at the time, he was heading up the Corpcom team, um, or he was working on the Corpcom team. He told me, he said, you know, a lot of people have been here for a long time and you are coming in from the outside. And so you're going to have a fresh perspective on a lot of things. And, and that's why you're here. And I started to think more about that. And I thought, you know, I, I, I think that, I think that one thing that corporations need as a whole is an anti-corporate sensibility when it comes to storytelling and content. It's not about, you know, <laughs> I, I can't help but laugh when I think about it. You know, there's, there's that formulaic, almost cheesy and cliched approach to content that we're right. all, we're all at the table smiling right sure, now because we've we know all exactly seen what it is. Yep. We've all seen it. We all know what it is. And, and, and sometimes truth be told, it's all that's needed for a specific piece. If it's information based and you know, you, you want to get the point across, you want to get it across quick, no bells or whistles, totally understand. But for everything else, what can you do to make it better? How can you pull people in? How can you make people buy what let's face it, you're selling right? Um, the best way that I've always found to do that, whether it's with a documentary or with Blue Man, or if I'm, if I'm creating content that people are seeing up on a stage, I'm selling them something. You know, I, I sort of take that philosophically back to my dad. My dad was actually in sales for International Harvester, which became Navistar Trucks, and, and he was one of their best salespeople that they ever had. And, and I think about that sometimes, just the fact that that's what we do. You know, we're all, we're all in a way salespeople. Now there are genuine salespeople and disingenuous salespeople. And I feel like if you are, if you're doing your best to tell a story for whoever the stakeholders are, in my case, let's say my company, Truist, if I don't put 110% into it and, and look for the genuine way to tell that story, then I'm not doing my job and somebody else needs to do it. I need to, I, I need to find a way to have people watch this and trust us more, want to do business with us, um, want to, you know, find some kind of other connection with us, whether it's partnering with us on a community effort, um, being, you know, in, engaging with the Truist Foundation, whatever it is, if the piece that I'm creating is not furthering that effort, 
then it's not delivering on our purpose. And that's just not good enough. And so that's, that's where I sort of set the, set the bar for everything that, that we do. And some things are obviously more challenging than others when it comes to trying to, to, to meet or exceed that bar on a regular basis. But, but that's what, that's what we're here for. That's what, that's what we want to do on a daily basis. So the last one I want to hit on that front. So your entry into BB&T in 2013, they post the job. They're looking to think ahead. This is what they want. Mm-hmm. Was it accepted as far as your perspective immediately, or what did it take to get some traction within the organization? Good question. Um, thank goodness the people that I had working around me and that I worked for were incredibly patient because I had I had very little idea what to do when it came to working in a company like this. Working in, in an organization with 12, 15, 18 different lines of business, uh, countless subsidiaries and affiliates, um, working with more vendors than I can count or that I can name, trying to understand how to blend the goals and objectives of a given piece with the overall strategic objectives and, and the at the time the, the mission, vision, and values of BB&T. It was a lot to take in. That was a lot to understand. Um, I was a fish out of water for quite a while, but I I did what I felt I needed to do at the time, which was just set some very specific lines for myself and stay in those lanes and just try and learn as much as I possibly could for probably, I think it was about the first year, year and a half before I really started to feel like I understood enough to contribute in a, in a, in a, in in any kind of a significant way. I mean, any of us can go and grab a camera and go out and shoot something and do a story and and that kind of thing. And I did plenty of that that first year. But when you really get into it and you really start to look at how to do more than that and and you start to look at, at, at the strategy and the purpose behind different pieces that are being made, you know, you, you, you really have to know what you're doing and you have to have good people around you. And thankfully I did. And they were incredibly patient with me. I, I still joke every once in a while with Brian Davis that I, I can't believe I wasn't fired 10 times in the first year. <laughs> um, but, but the truth is I, I, it, it worked out great and I'm, I'm so glad that I'm here. Last one before we hit the rapid questions, yeah. um, advice for young people getting into the creative world. What, what do you share with them? You said some things you share with your daughter now yeah. about doing the job that you love doing and not having to be paid for it. What, uh, what would be that advice that you'd share? Take a step back, take a deep breath. Don't feel like you have to have it all figured out right now or anytime soon. Um, just because it's graduation day doesn't mean that you have to start a full-time job tomorrow in your career of choice that you have figured out, which none of us have anything figured out. Let's face it. Um, it, it, you, you have to, you have to give yourself a little bit of leeway, you know, get out of your own way. Believe that you are more than you will ever need. And you have to allow yourself time to figure out what that means for you. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what the expectations of the world are. It doesn't matter what you see online. What matters is taking the time and just however much time that is, if you're 25, if you're 30, if you're 35, 
do day to day what you want to do and what you're passionate about. Back when I was learning how to edit, when I got out of college and I was going through that whole exercise of teaching myself, I would get up every morning and the only deal with myself that I made was I've got to be at the theater for, for Blue Man at, at 4.30 or 5. I've got a few hours this morning. I'm going to have some coffee and I'm going to teach myself something new. Every single day I did that. I got up every single day and I taught myself something new about post-production. And before I knew it, I'm sitting here and I'm teaching other people in my life literally almost every day when I'm working something about post-production. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's amazing to think about those little decisions that we make, both good or bad, add up. And the more that you can do on the good side to help you get to wherever you want to go, even if you don't know where that is, as long as it's somewhere, somewhere good, somewhere positive, somewhere productive, somewhere that if you're lucky is something that you're passionate about and, and impacts people's lives. That's what I would say. Just give yourself a break, relax, you know, you'll get there. Good stuff. So we like to end these podcasts, Brian, we do uh, rapid fire four questions. Uh-oh. And so we're going we're gonna to James fire Lipton style. Yeah, yeah we're right. Gonna fire match right now. <laughs> and, and this one's concise. Okay. What keeps you motivated? My family. How, how, how long do I that's have to good. answer? No, that's, that's good. That's great. That's good. I was <laughs> waiting on Tim. Right we alternate. He okay. Was, was, so cool. during the pandemic, mm-hmm. what's one key thing you learned about yourself that you weren't aware of going into it? Oh, wow. That masks are not all that bad. All right. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the first one. That, <laughs> that's the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> so, what's a challenge that you have faced in your life that changed you for the better? Realizing that I have uh, an anxiety disorder, and this being Mental Health Month, Mental Health Awareness Month, um, it's it's apropos. Um, it's something that. I didn't know that I had, and I, I started to realize, I guess it was about five years ago, I started to put some, th- some, some things together over time that had, that had kind of happened, you know, in different situations, and I thought, well, it doesn't make any sense. You know, none of this makes any sense. Why would I be, on this day, why would I have a panic attack when I'm around a bunch of people that I'm you know, have great relationships with and I trust and we're, you know, it could be my own family, could be anybody. And so I started thinking about it and I talked to my family a bit about it and um, realized that um, my wife had, had thank God for my wife because she had actually had the same realization about herself about 10 years earlier. And so um, we've been able to help our daughter uh, sort of traverse that same that same uh, uh, body of water here as she goes into high school, which I wish that I had had that when I was her age, because if I had, things may have gone a little smoother, but I had no idea that, that this was a, that this was even a thing back then. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's, that's something that it's funny. I don't even remember the question. <laughs> no, but it's, that was a, it was, you know, a challenge that you faced that's made you better. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I, a, this is a relatively recent one. Yeah. So, so this was, this was a challenge. This was something that I, I had to 
really take a look at and say, you know what, this is, this is real. Um, it's also okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm more thankful that I was able to identify what was going on and begin to learn how to cope with it and deal with it. Because I think that unfortunately so many people go through their lives just allowing it to affect their lives, their self-esteem, their, their, their self-confidence. It affects their jobs. It affects their home lives. Uh, it leads to rampant alcohol and drug abuse and just self-medication and trying to, trying to get to the bottom of something that they never get to the bottom of. And thankfully, uh, I did. And so it's, it's something that has made me hopefully better and made me definitely stronger. And, um, you know, it's something that's, that, that's never cured. It never goes away. It's just something that you learn to sort of manage and, 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 to, and take care of over time. Awesome. So. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it, it mm-hmm. is great for people to hear that, and know that, you know, people deal with all kinds of challenges and they need to know that they can get help. So that's, yeah. that's what's awesome. Absolutely. Um, I'll leave you on a light note, something, a fun fact that people wouldn't know you know about you and something maybe you enjoy a hobby, um, mm. something that they wouldn't be. Wow. Five years ago, I would have never said this. <laughs> I was the kid that drew stick figures. I had no idea how I, I, it was not my thing to draw or to do any kind of, of hand oriented art, but I do, um, a lot of abstract art now. I'm, I paint, I've been painting acrylics for about the last three years or so. I've done in the neighborhood of about 50 paintings and I just did my, my most recent one is about a, gosh, what is it? A six foot by six foot that's over, over our fireplace. And, um, uh, my wife wasn't sure what she thought about it at first and now she won't let me take it down and change a thing, <laughs> which is kind of, which is, which is kind of cool because we hung it up there because I, I, I wasn't sure what I needed to do next to finish it. It turns out it's finished. And, uh, so that's one thing I do. I'm, I also, um, just started working in carpentry and making floating frames for the, for the canvases. So, uh, it's a great way to unwind. You know, some people love working on cars, some people, you know, love biking. You know, my brother's got a Harley. Um, this is my space. This is what I love to do. You know, just surround me with a bunch of paint and canvases. I'm good. That's great. Well, Brian, great stuff. Uh, again, glad we could get this on the books, get yeah. you in here. Great conversation, information, honesty, all those things that, that, that make things that much better. So yeah. thanks for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thank you. You can find more episodes of The Hive Life and listen to more conversations like this one by heading to our website, spiraclebuzz.com. Find more podcasts under the Resources tab and check us out on social media across multiple platforms at Spiracle Media. For Brian Harrison and Tim Baer, I'm Jared Latch. Thanks for listening and so long for now. You've been listening to The Hive Life, brought to you by Spiracle Media. Always remember, you can visit spiraclebuzz.com or follow us at Spiracle Media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll see you next time on The Hive Life.